Hello and welcome into God's Word During Exile. This is a podcast in which a few pastors get together and we talk through God's Word. Right now we find ourselves studying the book of Revelation and we are in chapter 14. We're going to be covering verses uh, 14 through 20 today and we hope to get through this entire passage. Uh, As you can see, we got two gentlemen here, uh, one of which you know, one of which is brand new. So Mike Hussey is still away uh, from us. He decided to take two weeks off and then he enjoyed it so much that he decided to take another week off without us. So uh, hopefully he'll be back next week, but we really don't know. Maybe this is Mike's silent escape from having to deal with me and my intros all the time. Uh, So Jason, we're happy to have you back. Thanks for hopping in with us again. And um, Brett's been dealing with a little bit of internet issues. So he keeps hopping in and out. Um, But Brett Bow is also another pastor who all of us know. uh, And we're happy that we could have him on too, because this kind of works as a little crossover between God's Word during exile. And then Brett and Jason are part of a podcast called Being Lutheran. And so if you're not familiar with their podcasting, it can be found on any uh, of the major podcast areas, or you can just go to their website, which is literally all one word, beinglutheran.com. And it looks like they're on episode 216. Ben, we got a lot of work to do, Ben. But who knows, with our current trajectory, Ben, we might be on episode 250 before we even finish the book of Revelation. (laughs) That's that's almost five years worth of slogging through the Lutheran confessions is what we've done. So 216 episodes and we are only we are exactly halfway through the book of or through the uh, Augsburg confession at this point in time. Nice. Yeah. So if you're interested in checking out another podcast, I would highly recommend checking out being Lutheran. Uh, And so we're happy that both of you guys are here. Welcome in uh, Jason and Brett. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, sure thing. All right. uh, So Brett, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to ask you to uh, open us in prayer and then Ben's going to get to doing some reading. All right. Yeah. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day you've blessed us with we praise you for your word come illuminate our minds and hearts uh, to read and study and grasp your scripture and the sense that uh, you have given to us and so guide us guide this discussion uh, among these friends and uh, we pray that you be glorified in it we pray in jesus name amen amen all right ben oh yeah i almost forgot so i I got it right last time because I'm the one who's recording. So this isn't really that impressive, but uh, Jason's (laughs) over here and Ben is down over here and, and Brett is here. Uh, And so, yeah. All right, Ben, give us a little read. All right. So uh, revelation chapter 14, uh, reading verses 14 through 20. I'm reading from the English standard version. Then I looked and behold a white cloud And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia here ends the reading amen all right thanks ben for reading that to us so we're going to go backwards we get a pretty similar motif in in both of these portions so 14 to 16 and then 17 through 20 have this a a fairly similar idea with this idea of a of a sickle 
um, and, and reaping a harvest. Uh, right now, I'm pretty sure we can be resonating with that as uh, I, I'm a person who, love, who loves gardening. And right now is the perfect time to begin harvesting and reaping. Uh, and there's really nothing better than having your own quality stuff that you've put in time uh, and essentially cultivated through. And so um, this passage really points to, you know, God having this ability to reap in his harvest. And so I'd like to spend a little bit of time kind of talking through that. And it, as we talked prior to coming on, we said that this relates pretty similarly to a parable that Ben's going to share with us eventually too, uh, that Jesus tells. And so let's just start right out of the gate in uh, verse 14. It says, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Um, so what exactly are we uh, looking at here? And is it similar to the way that um, the son of man has been referenced in the past? What do you guys think? Yeah, you've got a pretty definitive picture of the second coming at this point in time. Jesus returning on the clouds. Again, as we walk through Revelation, uh, what you want to be paying attention to is all the, the biblical imagery going on in this. We want to not get lost in the weeds of what specifically is going on here. Uh, but you have a definitive picture of the presence of God in the pillar of cloud uh, from the Exodus. Uh, you have the promise in Acts chapter 1, among many other places, that Christ is going to return uh, on the clouds or in the clouds. And you have the idea that Christ is going to return for judgment. That's the image of the sickle. And, uh, the, you know, I think one of the other things we would do, this is the fulfillment of what we confess on a regular and weekly basis in the church when we confess the Apostles' Creed, that Christ is going to return for judgment. Uh, so, uh, whereas the harvest is talked about in the Gospels by Christ is a gospel harvest, uh, what you have going on here in Revelation 14 is a law in gospel harvest in, in the final judgment. Yeah, and just uh, to kind of connect it to uh, the church year as well, this is basically where Advent focuses our attention on, is the second coming of Christ. And so it brings out again that... Uh, theme of you know of repentance again as well and preparation for you know christ to to come and to uh initiate the the harvest and so yeah just a little connection to our to our church here here this is where advent focuses on in particular nice all right let's hop into uh to verse 15 as we continue to truck forward um it says, then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so now you have the encouragement of an angel um, to reap because everything is ready uh, to be harvested. What do we think about that? I, I think we got to think about that. It's not so much the angel that's important, but where the angel's coming from. Mm -hmm. The angel is coming out of the temple. And the temple historically is the presence of God the Father, where God the Father has revealed. Uh, this, again, is entirely consistent biblical imagery because Jesus confessed, oh, was it in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, that the Son of Man does not know the time or the hour for the second coming. So God sends a messenger to Jesus saying the second coming is at hand now. Uh, again, <laughs> entirely consistent biblical imagery in Revelation. And this is why it is so, so important that we don't treat Revelation as if it's an addendum to scripture. And we, we try to interpret Revelation on its own terms separately from the other 65 books. Yeah, so this would, you know, in the same portion of scripture you just mentioned, Jason, this would connect with the, you know, the parable of the 10 virgins and the bridegroom who goes away for a while. And then, you know, when the time is right, according to the father's timing, he sends the bridegroom back to uh, bring 
judgment on unbelievers and to gather his bride. And so, um, so that fits, as you said, very well with this messenger coming from the temple saying to Christ, the son of man, you know, the father says, basically the time has come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I was thinking too, in four, four, you know, talking about Advent and uh, in Christ, you know, Galatians four, four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Yeah, I think that's the way God operates, you know, on his, his timetable. And uh, I just I like to connect those two comings uh, when we can. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree with that. Enable uh, to use the continuity of scripture to point towards its importance and how it is uh, consistent, I think is one of the most important things that we can do, because as we look at scripture, one of the things that I always try to encourage people is that it's a book of promises. And in the same way that we would believe promises, we believe promises because of the track record. You know, when, when someone tells us they're going to do something and they do it, the next time we are more likely to believe that they are going to do what they tell us they're going to do next, as opposed to the opposite. If we had, uh, you know, a God who told us he was going to do something and then he didn't, or he fell short on it, or he even changed his idea. And that's why I think, you know, Jason, what you brought up, the continuity between 15 uh, and the angel coming out of the temple and showing that you know, not even Christ knew when the time was. And so he's being told by God, hey, it's ready now, really points to the continuity that can be found in all of scripture. And sometimes we do a disservice when we don't interpret scripture with other passages of scripture, and we tend to put our own interpretation on it, as opposed to using scripture uh, for what it's meant to which is to help us understand God and using other scripture to really show its validity. And I feel like that's exactly what we're doing here in 15. We're showing, you know, Jesus didn't know when the time was God knew. And so when the time came, like you were saying, Jason, he sent a messenger to tell Jesus, let's go, let's make this happen. Uh, Any other comments before we move on to 16? Yeah. It just lends credence that the particulars of the vision aren't as important as to the images that it's connecting with, because we want to make certain that, you know, especially in this, in revelation where there's the cycles that, you know, we've talked about, and I know you guys have talked about uh, the, the seven plagues are coming up and the seven bowls and all things like this. Uh, that we are finishing a cycle with the end of time here. And so we would expect everything from this section in chapter 14 to be consistent with everywhere else that God talks about his judgment. Yeah, and um, thinking about that, you know, with the whole, you know, continuity of scripture and all that too, I think sometimes we think that, um, you know, we kind of come to the end of the, the book of acts and then it's kind of just you know there's nothing else it's just kind of this silent period until then we stack revelation on way at the end but really you know especially with that connection too with you know jesus is sitting on the cloud and he comes on the cloud connection to the beginning of the book of acts really what we have in in revelation and what we've been trying to, to say through all this too is that revelation gives us the rest of church history basically you know not in specific details like we find in the book of acts like this particular event happened or so on but but revelation tells us exactly you know like these are the kinds of things that are going to happen they're going to be present throughout the entire uh history of the church and the church age until jesus returns and so it's not as if you know we get to the end of the book of acts nope that's it it's no this is this is the kind of stuff that's going to keep happening and keep going on and we have that in the book of revelation and so that brings us you know in a sense from the end of the book of Acts and so on, all the way to the second coming of Christ. And it's entirely reasonable for Christians to view the book of Revelation uh, as it relates to the gospel of John in the same way the book of Acts relates to the gospel of Luke. It's the second part of that same story, and it shows us the life of the church, you know, and especially as Luke does a good job of showing us the technicalities of the life of Christ in his gospel and then the technicalities of the beginning of the church. Uh, John 
does an amazing job of showing us the spiritual principles that we draw from the life of Christ in his gospel and the spiritual principles from the life of the church throughout time until the second coming. All right, let's move into 16. It says, so he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a powerful image to think of that here is Christ swinging his sickle over the earth and just harvesting right away. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, it kind of does away with the ideas of, oh, Jesus is just, you know, the the nice guy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like so often we kind of divorce judgment from from Christ. Like, you know, I don't know if it's very popular anymore or not. I, I don't know. But years ago, there was a popular drama, Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. If you get, are you guys familiar with that at all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I grew and, up with that. And, um, numerous issues with with that people (laughs) into the kingdom of god um but one of the things that was such you know it's just stood out to me was that you know so when it it's all these scenes of people at you know dying right and they come uh before the the gates of heaven right and you know so if you were a believer and you died in faith well and you know jesus comes out of heaven with you know all this you know i don't know what music they have played or whatever then you know, welcome. I mean, you into heaven, I think in order right? to get our listeners to understand it, maybe if you want to sing a couple bars of what you think Jesus that will come out. that will not help. See, I always picture like I'm waiting at the pearly gates, and Jesus is totally coming out with like a bagpipe to play us. Natal, what you need to do while we're having this conversation is you need to find the YouTube link to Ray Bolts's music video, "Behold the Lamb." Challenge accepted. That's really the only logical conclusion <laughs> for all of this. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. So if you're if you die in in faith, well, then Jesus comes out and he welcomes you into heaven, right? But if your name is not found in the book of life, well, then you know, then Satan comes out of hell and drags you off, skick, kicking and screaming, and casts you into hell, laughing, you know, diabolically, like. I'm going to you know, have my way with you and rule over you and all this kind of stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of issues with that one. You know, hell is Satan's prison. It's not his domain. Um, and he doesn't come in and out mm-hmm. of hell anyways. Um, so right. aside from that, but, but what you, the picture you get then is, well, Jesus is the nice guy. He's the guy who welcomes into heaven and all that bad stuff, all that judgment. That's, you know, that's the devil. That's what he does. And that's not, it's not at all true. Jesus both, welcomes into heaven and casts into hell he is the judge of all the earth and that's how scripture speaks to it too the father has said to you know to the son that he has given him the judgment of the world that authority that's part of his uh ascension and sitting on the the throne at the right hand of god is that the father has given the son the judgment of the world and so christ is he's imagine that he speaks both law and gospel right <laughs> well and again the one of the things we need to be better at in American context is to realize that scripture was delivered in an entirely different context. Uh, scripture was delivered in a Middle Eastern agrarian society. And, and one of the most important details uh, in these first three verses, and it'll come up again in the second section of this passage, is that Jesus and then the other angel, they have a sharp sickle. Okay, Not just a run-of-the-mill everyday sickle. It's a sharp sickle. And what does that imply? It's that as Jesus uses the sharp sickle, there will be no gleaning left over. There will be nothing left after he swings the sickle. And this is the final judgment. This is the authority of Christ over the world. And this is, as we talked about, verse 16 is the prophetic fulfillment of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Yeah. Um, read that. Yeah, stage? Ben. Do you want to? Do you want to read that? I don't know if you have that sure. fired up. I have kind of a yep. illustration to go along with that too. So, um, okay. you got that ready to go? Yep. All right. Sweet. Go for it. <clears throat> All right. So this is from Matthew chapter thirteen, uh, verses twenty-four through thirty. This is the parable of the weeds. <clears throat> he put another parable before them, saying, "This is Jesus, of course." 
The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barns. I think it's just as a quick first observation, I think it's good to, to understand that the, the weeds that are being described there basically would have the same appearance as the wheat until the harvest. So that's the reason for not going out and gathering them before the harvest, because you wouldn't be able to tell which is which. Um, and so. Also, and, doesn't that really speak to the patience of God, too? that he's willing to, to wait until he is positive. Like, I think, I think that that's a, a really good uh, illustration of who the Lord is, is his patience here in this passage. Um, one of the illustrations that I had, so I, uh, I was a chef for a number of years going through college. And then uh, before I started out going to seminary, I worked in a kitchen too. And there's really nothing better than a sharp knife or a, a sharp tool. Mm. And so this idea of uh, Christ having a sharp sickle uh, is not only mm. for the benefit of um, the individual who's wielding it, but also the benefit of the object that is being harvested too. you know, clean cuts are one of the best things that you can do as a chef, or even if you're harvesting your own uh, plants um, or vegetables or any of that stuff, a clean cut will more often than not not harm the rest of the plant. It'll also give you the ability to store uh, the object in which you have now harvested better than if you were to, you know, leave half of the vine still attached or leave a portion of the actual vegetable there. And so I think that the sharpness of this sickle is something that's really important because it's the cleanest cut for the um, retention of what's going on here. And remember, this harvest, too, is just to bring people into said judgment. It's not the harvest is not destroying uh, both um, the wheat and the tares. You know, they're, they're being thrown then into the furnace for the final uh for, for the final doing of it. And so it's kind of important to see, like, even using the sharpness was important in order to harvest appropriately for what we see here. Uh, any other comments before we go into the next section? Yeah, with that illustration, there's, again, consistency of biblical imagery. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword able to divide soul and spirit and bone from marrow, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, one of the other things along with that point, Mike, is a dull knife, there's few da more dangerous things in the kitchen than a dull knife because you start making stupid decisions with how to, you know, cut instead of mash a tomato or something like that. If we are not in the church age absolutely precise with our handling of the word of God, we're going to do damage to souls. But it, in mm -hmm. fact, the imagery is that we as pastors and then we as Christians have been given that exact same tool. We have this sharp sickle by which, you know, God does his harvest that, you know, that, that connects us from the harvest that Jesus talks about where the fields are white unto harvest with what's going on now. The, the, the tool Jesus is using here at the end of time is the word of God used properly rightly dividing law and gospel to delineate, you know, to, we're going to mix all the metaphors here to separate the wheat from the goat or the, the sheep from the goats, right? Uh, mm -hmm. This is exactly what's going on. And again, we're three verses in, and it's just one big pile of consistent biblical imagery after the next one. Yeah, and I think um, it's good to, to mention here too, 
whatever is that you know this gives us a picture too of the lack of a better term the we call it the visible church the church that we can see in this age that it's always a mixed body that the the wheat and the weeds grow together and we are not able to you know unless they're uh unless there's like something really visible and public that we can see that would demonstrate unrepentance we can't you know we can't see into the heart of someone to know whether there is faith or not and so you know we so we don't uh, embrace this idea of church that we can have, um, you know, a pure assembly, you know, in, in this mm-hmm. age, like, you know, that, that we can see, you know, our membership in our churches or so on the people there, we will never have a pure assembly. And sometimes in the history of the church, this has been attempted as if, you know, well, we can, we're only going to have a, a congregation of, of true believers, but we yeah. can't, we can't have that. Well, that's the Westboro Baptist way of handling things. And you're always mm-hmm. subdividing down. And I, I, this imagery of a harvest too. Go ahead, Brett. Yeah, I think about how this image of a harvest is used by like evangelists and uh, those, you know, calling for a decision for Jesus. And, uh, you know, I, I, I much prefer this image of, of Christ, um, you know, gathering uh, those into his, uh, or, or gathering the harvest at the end of the age. I was muted. Yeah, no, I agree with that. That's, uh, that's an important thing to, uh, to bring up. All right. You guys ready to go into 17? Okay, sweet. So, uh, now we have another angel who, once again, we can point this out, came out of the temple in heaven and he, uh, he too had a sharp sickle. We're going to go into 18 because th- that just kind of was a little amuse-bouche, if you will, of this portion. Uh, so 18 says, still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. So now we're getting into this idea of grapes. What what are we, what exactly are we looking at here? Grapes. <laughs> All right. Grapes of the earth. Mm. That's it. That sounds sometimes, delicious. Sometimes a grape's just a grape, man. All right. <laughs> But no, you have the you have the parable of the vineyard, uh, you know, in the significance of the vineyard, uh, man, that goes all the way back to there's there's Deuteronomy imagery with the vineyard. Uh, the big vineyard passage is in the book of Isaiah. Uh, and, and, you know, where, you know, I was kind of in the last episode humming my way through uh, uh, the battle hymn of the Republic where the grapes of wrath are stored. All of this is going on um, again we could talk all day about the biblical imagery going on in this. And, and one of the, the, the biblical images that is used is that God uses the image of making wine as an image of judgment on the nations. And, and so the wine press of God's wrath is that the, the, in, in, especially in the prophets, there is this enticement to power from God giving his cup. And and Brett, this would go all the way back to what you were saying with the fullness of time, is that God directs the events of history to so that his judgment makes the most sense at the moment. And and, and this is exactly what's going on with that, is that you have uh, all of this imagery coming together again at the end of time for the final judgment. Yeah, and we kind of have that uh, connection with the first part of chapter 14. Um, with anyone who worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead and his hand, that such a one will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured out, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And so we have that, that connection there too, that what was uh, spoken ahead of time in the first part of chapter 14 is now coming to its fulfillment. They, uh, Those who you know, refuse to um, repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins 
this is the the wine press of God's wrath that they will endure that um, John spoke about just earlier in chapter 14. And I would think we can be careful uh, and we can be, we, we can even be hesitant here, but there is a gospel image for the faithful ones of God in this because the gospel is delivered to us in bread and wine. And it is a reminder for the faithful children of God that our sins have been judged as Christ's. So, so what is happening here to unbelievers at the end of time is what has happened to our sin on the cross as Christ took the wrath of God. And, and it's, it's entirely consistent in that we must preach the gospel not as God ignoring our sins or tolerating our sins, but the, the great proclamation of the gospel is that our sins have still been judged. They've just been judged as someone else's sins. And, and so now you, you have this, you know, full throttle right in front of us that our sins are either judged as Christ's sins in the right here and right now, or our sins are judged as our sins at the end of time and the outcome is not good. And we even have that connection of language, right? Where Jesus speaks of drinking the cup, right? Yep. That the father has, has given him mm-hmm. even praise in the garden of Gethsemane, you know, let this cup pass for me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so we have that imagery of, of the cup and the wine as well. Um, that connects in. So we kind of already touched on this, but I, I'd like to spend a little bit more time for our listeners uh, in verse 19, where it says, The angel swung his sickle on earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. I'd love to spend a little bit more time talking about God's wrath. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. that's something that gets overlooked uh, within certain church circles. We don't want to talk about an angry God who might be mad at us at any point. We want to talk about, you know, the the love that Christ has for us, which is important to talk about the love that Christ has for us. But it's even more important to point to Christ's love in light of God's wrath. You know, Christ being the, we use that big word propitiation, uh, and essentially meaning that he paid for the wrath that we deserve. And so I'd like to maybe spend a little bit more time on that to really drive that point home because of how foundational this wrath of God that was supposed to be sent in our direction because of sin has now been redirected upon Christ for our behalf. So what do you guys think about that? Maybe we can get some opinions about this wrath of God situation. I think the first picture of the wrath of God in verse 19 is the image of God using a sickle to harvest the grapes. Uh, uh, I'm not a, a wine expert or a farming expert, but I know enough to know that you don't normally harvest grapes with a sickle. The, the whole point of harvesting grapes is that you keep the vine intact. So the first image of the wrath of God is that at the end of time, God's ending it all that he is the, the, there will be no more crop of the grapes. And uh, I, I think that's instructive to kind of build the base of what we're talking about with God's wrath is that uh, when we think we're dealing with God's wrath right now, whether it's natural uh, natural disasters or calamity or this, that, and the other thing, what we're actually dealing with right now is God's patience that he is holding back so that others might be saved. Mm-hmm. Where you see God's wrath exercised here is at the end of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think too that those that emphasize God's love over God's wrath, I don't think they realize how much God's wrath is is a huge part of this because uh, they have someone directing their wrath upon what they aim to be uh, sinful. Uh, but God completely deals uh, with uh, with pouring out his wrath upon, uh, he is completely just, I guess is what I'm trying to say, in his character tra- character traits. And and it just fits so nicely that we'll never complete that thought. <laughs> it just fits so nicely uh, that you had me on the hook, Brett. 
Oh, all right. Well, we'll, we'll see if he gets back on. When he, but when he yeah, and, um, kind of drawing in a connection with what you were saying too, Mike, with you know propitiation and such, and and the reality of God's wrath. I mean, this is the whole reason for the sacrificial system under the old covenant. Um, the chief day, the day of atonement, is precisely that. It was blood poured on the sprinkled on the mercy seat, which is the propitiation. It's the satisfaction of God's wrath, you know, and those animals stood in place telling us of the Messiah who was to come, who really truly um, received God's wrath and who's, who himself is that mercy seat, is that propitiation, is his blood that was shed. But I mean, that's the whole point, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole reason why God sent Christ, right? Because his wrath is real and our sin is real you know right right then and there when adam and eve you know believed the serpent rather than god himself he could have been done with it all i mean that would have been you know wrath was the reality right because we were sinful and we see throughout all of scripture god continually you know again in his patience as you mentioned jason and his grace where for example he clothes adam and eve Right. And he gives them the promise of the Messiah who had come. And even, you know, going on later, you know, scripture speaks of, I think it's in Hebrews, um, that God's patience waited in the days of Noah, right? With all of this sinfulness, all this garbage, and he spared Noah and his family, wiped everyone else out with the flood. And then on and on it goes. You know, God's wrath is the is the constant reality because of our sinfulness. But this is the whole reason for Jesus. I mean, that's, that's the whole point. So if you take away God's wrath then you have completely removed any necessity of Christ. And, and we would, we would also recognize biblically that up until this point, there has always also been someone there to turn away God's wrath, right? As God's wrath is welling up, uh, Moses stands in the gap between God and the rebellious Israelites and, Mm -hmm. and, and um, Phineas, comes to the aid of the Israelites during the plague with the censors and, and David comes to the aid um, in re- response to his own sin. David comes and pleads for the plague to end and God ends the plague. And then ultimately Christ does this. But, but I think that's where we would have an interpretive key here in chapter 14. God's wrath is on full display, not just as his wrath against sin, but his wrath against people who continued to reject the way that God has made for his wrath to be stemmed. That's the wrath at the end of time, right? Is that, that there is a percentage of people throughout history that has steadfastly rejected the gospel. And, and would that not, would we not expect that to make God angry at the end of time that God has wrath against sin? Yes. But this final wrath is also against the rejection of man, uh, the rejection of the gospel by man. Yeah, and you can kind of see a microcosm in that in a little bit in Israel's own history, you know, with the, for example, the northern kingdom, which, you know, has almost nothing to commend it. Um, You know, they're wiped off the map, right? I mean, but God waited, you know, patiently, patiently, patiently enduring all of this garbage. And then and the Southern kingdom isn't really much better off, um, especially near the end, you know, I mean, like you read about the absolute wickedness of Manasseh and so on and how God was there even still, you know, patient and waiting. And yet, you know, and so his, his responses of, of wrath and judgment, you know, it comes on the heels of just, you know, centuries basically of refusal to repent and to trust uh, and trust in God. And then, you know, we see a bigger picture of that with his final wrath that comes on the last day. He has been patiently enduring all of that from the time of Adam and Eve all the way till the day that he comes, you know? And so, um, yeah, it's exactly that. It is that response to that repeated refusal to repent and to trust in Christ. Yeah. All the day long, I have held up my hands to a stiff necked and obstinate people. All right, that's enough of you, Jason, talking about how you act in the car. Um, oh, no, I guess that's more like me. Man, oh, man, oh, man. 
Um, yeah, Tra- traffic in Minneapolis. Well, yeah, if if you guys would have seen people. If you guys would have seen the tweet I sent this morning about Minneapolis traffic, that is more relevant than you know. <laughs> uh, nice. Nice. All right. Um, so let's go into our last verse. Uh, and we will begin our wrap up. We got about 15 minutes left or so. So verse 20 says they were trampled in the wine press outside the city and the blood flowed out of the press rising as high as the horses bridles for a distance of 1600 stadia so now stadia i have as a marker in my study bible as a 180 miles i don't know if you guys have anything different but man, you talk about like movie scenes. Imagine this as a movie scene, like the first half hour of Saving Private Ryan. Or or something just a little bit less than a typical Quentin Tarantino movie. Right. <laughs> right. Or, you know, maybe Rambo. <laughs> maybe Rambo. Maybe <laughs> Rambo. So, uh, so what do you guys think about this? I mean, it definitely paints a picture of judgment and of wrath. Can can, can I tell you? Can can I make confession here? <laughs> uh, I got two pastors. Uh, here's what I can't get around, and and I I I I want an answer here. Oh boy! Uh, for all of the people that say that in Holy Communion. Christ can't make the wine into the blood. Here we have, at the end of time, God literally making the wine into the blood and its judgment. Is that a fair connection for us to be making and an apologetic we would use in Scripture? Because it seems to me, again, this is really consistent biblical imagery with what we talk Mm -hmm. about, uh, at least principally, in communion. You know, in it's i just can't get around that 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 phrase is stuck in my craw and i can't that's where my brain is at yeah i mean from my i don't think any of us are going to argue with that whatsoever uh one of the biggest things that i always have uh with people when i try to explain to them uh consubstantiation or the act in which christ is in with and under the elements um the thing that always gets barked back at me, bark, barked back at me, is that's just too difficult to believe. I can't believe that it's his blood. I can't believe that it's his body. And I was like, yeah, but like when Scripture tells you if you confess your sins that God's going to forgive you, do you not believe that? And they're like, oh no, I believe that. Well, why is that so? Like, so why can you believe that? But then yet, when Jesus says literally in Scripture, this is my body. Why is that so far-fetched? I keep thinking of, what is that, Matthew Matthew 18, 19? The part where it says, um, for man, for man uh, all nothing is possible, but for God, everything is possible. That's the, isn't that the passage with the camel in the eye of a needle? Yes. Uh, for, for man is impossible, but not for God. All right. things are possible with God. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, we, we certainly, this isn't a one-to-one comparison with what goes on in Holy Communion, right? We wouldn't want to mm-hmm. make that comparison. But the image is similar enough to, again, the consistency of biblical imagery should let us interpret what goes on in Holy Communion and with what goes on in God's eyes at the final judgment with the judgment of sin. And yeah. at that point in time, Christ's blood is intimately connected to God's judgment against sin, mm-hmm. which would mean that at the end of time, should we lapse in our belief and be unbelievers, that our blood is intimately connected with the judgment against our own sin. Yeah, so any other, um, any other comments about this verse that we need to bring out? Because otherwise, um, we can just kind of wrap up. And uh, I have the link so that I can share this Ray Bolt's official video, Watch the Lamb. Uh, um, I think an important 
detail in in verse 22 is that um or is it also i don't mean that there's two extra verses what bible um, are you reading <laughs> right. um is that this happens the judgment of god this happens outside the city and that's a consistent uh old testament imagery as well is that to be outside of the city is to be outside of god's gracious presence um and so you know because in the city or in the assembly is uh, the Ark of the Covenant is the tabernacle, the temple. This is the place where God has placed his gracious promise. Like we want to make sure that that's, that that's clear. It's not to say that outside the city, you're out of God's presence, but you're away from his gracious presence uh, where he is for you, for your salvation. Like, and so um, to be cast out, that's why the lepers, for example, had to be outside the city as well. It wasn't just that they were contagious, but this is judgment, you know? And so to be cast out of the city or out of the people of God in that sense, you know, you are cast away from uh, God's gracious presence. And that's also in the imagery of the scapegoat that is led outside of the city and, and released in the wilderness is that that's the place of God's wrath and judgment. And so, you know, to be in the city is to be safe, to be outside of the city is to be under God's wrath. And that's also then uh, consistent imagery uh, brought up here. And it shows us that, you know, the apostle John was intimately familiar with the old Testament and it's, yep. and it's imagery. And that comes out in revelation in spades. And, and that's precisely the imagery of Golgotha too, that where, yes. where Christ was crucified was outside the city. Like what yeah. we're uh, what, I mean, you have to walk away from these seven verses with the conclusion that we are being presented the image of final judgment as a contrast to the image of redemption, that either God has made a way or God will end your way, right? Uh, I, I think the last bit of that, I think there's probably a little bit of parsing we can do with the number 1600, uh, that it's a pretty biblically significant number in that it's 40 squared, 40 times 40. Uh, and 40 is a pretty big deal when it comes to scripture, that's how long it rained during the flood. Uh, 40 is the amount of time the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. Uh, 40 is how long Jesus was tempted in the wilderness uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we look at that. The, the 40 times 40 is the culmination of God's perfect judgment. Again, we have to be led to believe that even though there are what? Uh, eight chapters left in Revelation after this, uh, that we're seeing a picture of final judgment. In, in, at the very least, this does not permit us to interpret Revelation on that consistently linear chronological scale, that what we're looking at are the images and the principles and not a then this, then this, then this, and let's tie this all to uh, American history so that we all arrive at the same place at the same time. Yeah, and hopefully in looking at at these things as we have in this episode helps to kind of cement that uh, in your minds as well of how filled Revelation is with the rest of Scripture. So we don't, again, we don't want to cast it off to its side or treat it like it's, you know, separated from the rest of Scripture. But it is filled with that consistent imagery um, and language from the rest of, of Holy Scripture. And that's, uh, you know, and that's true. Um, of God's word in general. That's one of the fascinating things as you, if you take the time to consistently read through it, you see over and over and over again, the utter consistency across all of the books. It's the same kinds of language, the same kinds of situations, the same messages from God, the same Christ in all of it. And so, you know, and that's, and that's true of, of Revelation as well. It is filled with the rest of scripture. And so, you know, there's an intimate connection there that we don't want to separate. Yeah, and 140, I forgot. 40 was the amount of time that Moses was on Mount Sinai when God was delivering the law. It's just consistent judgment in imagery, like you said. Great. Um, <clears throat> so a little message to Matt Nelson. If you're listening to this, you can post in the comments something about God's wrath. And then Ben will buy you a cup of coffee or maybe something a little stronger. Uh, and then for Mike Hussey, um, if you are actually listening, um, you need to repent uh, in the next episode for missing this episode. Uh, and then I will mail you something. A death nut. A death nut. <laughs>
which I still totally have. I still got them right here. Here they are. Here it is. <laughs> Haven't even opened it yet. Speaking of God's judgment. Right? <laughs> right. Fiery <laughs> judgment. Oh, man. Well, Jason, thanks for being here. Brett, too. Man, we're bummed that, that the internet just wasn't cooperating. But if you want to hear more from Brett, which I would highly recommend you do, uh, definitely check out Being Lutheran. Um, and once again, their website is beinglutheranalloneword.com. Uh, and then you could get their podcast also uh, on any of the major podcast uh, initiatives. And so, Jason, thanks for being here with us again. Um, ben, it's always a pleasure, bud. You, you are the consistency that we need in our lives. So thank you, Ben. Um, all right. Uh, any final thoughts before we ask Jason to close in prayer? All right. Tune in next week. We're going into chapter 15. All right, Jason, could you close in prayer, please? All right. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the consistency of your word, Lord. Uh, it is a consistency that judges our sin as failing to meet the standard of your perfect holiness. But in the consistency of your word, you also consistently deliver us our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins by your great and gracious gospel in your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. Uh, help us uh, to understand that as you are a God of wrath against our sin, you are simultaneously a God of mercy and grace to forgive us and to provide us a way so that at the final judgment, we will be judged righteous and spend eternity in your presence rather than uh, to be judged by our own sinfulness and be uh, uh, squished like the grapes of wrath we just read about, Father. Thank you for all that you have said to us and spoken to us by your word and through your spirit, Lord, and we ask that you would sustain our faith by that same word and spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Thanks for joining. It was good to see you. To our listeners, we appreciate you too. If you ever have any questions, feel free to reach out to us. We would be happy to uh, get you some answers or at least look up where we can find some of the answers to your questions. All right, guys. Have a good rest of your day. See ya.